Hello, Utility Fleet World. It's Kurt Moreland, Associate Publisher with Utility Fleet Professional with another edition of Under the UFP Hood. And I am so happy to have Dan Fitzpatrick of Northwestern Energy be our guest because he is working in a very rugged part of the country, and I'm so interested to find out what some of his experiences are. So welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kurt. We had an interview with uh, Matt uh, Gilliland uh, about winterizing the fleets in, in the last edition, and uh, hopefully it will become spring, but we've still had some very winter weather. Can you also give our listeners some tips? Because I like to think of us as utility fleets, but also that this program is for any type of fleet owner, especially truck fleet owners. Um, being in a rugged part of the area, tell us what the geographic area that you cover and then maybe any winterizing tips that that you have. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Northwestern Energy, is a, we're a combo gas and electric utility. We operate in Montana, eastern South Dakota, and southern Nebraska. Uh, so we cover, you know, part of the West and then into the Midwest. And we have, you know, distribution, transmission electric. We have generation on the electric side. We have distribution gas. We have, you know, gas fields that have gathering wells. And so we have we have a little bit of everything. And we operate in a lot of different conditions. Um, you know, Montana being mountainous and having, you know, heavy winters with a lot of snow. And then you compare it to the Midwest where um, we have the freezing rain, we have the snow and ice, and we also have humidity um, to deal with in both South Dakota and Nebraska. So, you know, as we head into the winter months, we start to look at, you know, winter coming, you know, in early October. And first things first, we typically see like a run on tires immediately. We we try to make sure that we have a pull points for our tires at like 5 16th inch, you know, 5 16th tread. But we will we will make sure that the vehicles have uh, good tires on them as they head into the winter months. Um, any of our assets that have hydraulic oil in them, we run tank heaters, whether they're electric or, or coolant based. We make sure that those are on. We don't want you know bad boom performance because of uh, cold weather. Um, you know, all of our vehicles we we buy everything is all wheel drive or four wheel drive um, in our light duty. So you know, F one fifties, escapes that type of thing. In our medium duty to heavy duty, we have, you know, our all of our small buckets on a 550 Ram chassis. They're all four by four, but you get into your freight liners, we have a mixture of four by four and two by four, and then on our digger derricks being four by six or six by six. So we've we we really make sure that we try to get a truck that's gonna handle the conditions, but also knowing there's limitations there. Um and so as we head in, all of our trucks have tire chains with them. We have storage boxes, we make sure the tire chains are in. And then the, the most critical part of our fleet as we get into winter months is our track units. Um, you're always trying to determine when to put the tracks on the side-by-side. -side. You, you, we typically see one snowfall in October. Operation is very excited. They want the tracks on and the snow melts. And then we're, we have another month of uh, uh, moderate weather. So we're, we always try to make that decision when's the best time to put tracks on so they have the assets that they, they can... Um, use that they're available you know we also have you know snow cats throughout the company and we go so far as to we make sure they're running all the batteries are charged um all the fluids but in our snow cats that are going out into the middle of the nowhere middle of, of nowhere a lot of times we'll work with operations to make sure we have you know food and drink in the in them like you know just canned foods and brief jerky and 
you know, stuff like that to where if a crew does get stuck or gets, you know, in the middle of a storm, they, they can at least, you know, have something to eat until we get them out of there. Um, so yeah, winterization is a big one for us. It starts in October and, you know, we don't come out of winter until sometimes right around Memorial Day, you know, based on the snow we see. Yeah, let's talk about those all-terrain vehicles. How many would you estimate you have in, in your fleet? So when it comes to like UTV side-by-sides, um, we probably, I think we have around 60 of them uh, spread out through all of our locations. They use them from everything from line patrol to troubleshooting. They use them on the gas side of the world too to go do, do leak, leak surveys and check meters. Um, we've owned every brand. Um, literally every brand, you know, uh, from your, your, your major manufacturers like Polaris, Can-Am, we have some Kawasaki's, we even have John Deere, we've done Bobcat, which are made by Polaris. We've had a little bit of, um, every brand. We have 60 of them spread out. The tough thing about side-by-sides is, um, they just, they're a consumer product. Uh, they're nice, they're handy, but they're just not tough enough for, for what we do. Uh, cause a lot of them have racks on them where we have to, you know, we have to be able to carry a cross arm off off road we have to carry the the couple linemen and their tools which can get heavy um so we yeah we use those we have snow machines too snowmobiles uh throughout our montana service territory we probably have about 25 snow machines in service uh and then in addition we have around nine snow cats um you know ranging from small really really old fire calls to newer uh piston bullies um or tucker uh so we have a mixture of everything trying to just try to, cause one other, one other group that really needs the, uh, the off-road equipment in the winter is our communications group. Like most utilities or even a railroad for that matter, they have uh they have their own radio system. So we have all these microwave sites throughout our service territory that we need to maintain. And so Snowcat, one of our heavy users of Snowcats is our communications, our radio people. That sounds, sounds really interesting. Do you ever have to get into a situation where, uh, you have to lease some to help you get by or or just to to add add through a certain projects? No, the reason being is like we could rent them through some of our cat dealers, but they're just not like, like when we buy a side by side for our linemen, it's a you know, it's a one thousand cc, typically a three seater or it's the you know the crew cab one. It has tracks on it, it has the windshield, it has a full cab, it has a heater, it has a front winch. They typically, what we could lease doesn't have all those features. So in that case, if we have one that goes down, we either borrow. And while we're borrowing from another area, we typically go to a, find a, find one at a dealer and just purchase it just to make sure we have it. Um, if it's one, and you know, if it's one that goes down early or prematurely, because we've seen, and we've seen everything with these, right? Like I, we had a, a newer one here in our Butte, Montana area where, is a is a Honda and they hit a tree stump with 175 miles on it and bent the frame. They needed a whole new frame replacement. So they just, you know, you just never know f- for what reason they might go down. Um, we try to get them up and running. But in the meantime, we don't have the luxury of saying, okay, you bent the frame, you can't get a new one. I have to provide assets to make sure we're real, reliable. So we will go out and buy a new one, you know, or borrow. As a fleet manager in uh, rugged territory, like Yellowstone, what are some of the other challenges that you run into that maybe a uh, a fleet manager, one of your peers that you talk to that's kind of in a nice prairie area, like you mentioned, Nebraska, what are, what are some of the things you have to do to prepare for 
for for Yellowstone. You go through a lot of tires, maybe more tires than others because of the mountainous uh, areas. Yeah, you know, we'll see. Yeah, we'll we'll be pulling tires more often in those areas. Plus, you know, in addition to that, like some of the gravel in your country, depending upon what your roads are made out, of, especially the gravel ones or dirt ones, we find that different, you know, different uh, mesh of of rock on them can have a a negative impact on a certain type of tire. If you have a like a like a really all of our guys want mud tires, but mud tires aren't always the greatest you want. You, your best application is probably an all season because if you get a mud tire and you get a big rock that goes in between two cleats, we've seen it where it just beats the you know it just beats the core of the tire so bad that it ends up destroying the tire. And for us, it's it's one thing to have a tire fa- fail prematurely is we just don't want a tire to fail when we need them the most. So we go through a, a number of tires in, in that Yellowstone area, but when it becomes winter in Yellowstone. Really, we're limited to main roads. If we're going anywhere off main road, we are either going on snow machines, snow uh, uh, a snow cat, or we're going through on snow or snow machine snow cat, or we're actually snowshoeing in because our all of our our crews will snowshoe. Uh, the one thing that comes up in winter, and I'm sure other fleet managers will have this frustration as well, is is what's your company policy for uh, you know towing a vehicle? Um, you know, we we get our guys sometimes they're so used to being out there on their own that they will pull vehicles out they'll tug them out of snow and ice and we do oftentimes you'll do more damage to your vehicle by towing it yourself or having the farmer with the tractor pull it out than you would by hiring a towing company uh you know we just had an instance in one of our locations where uh we our crew was working at one of our larger substations and a, a, an 18 wheeler came in to drop off some transmission poles and they had to go down a small incline to this uh substation and on the way out with hot tires from being on the interstate, the the semi couldn't get up the hill. So our crew decided to help pull them up by using a, our Freightliner 4x4 bucket in four low and ended up, uh, you know, destroying the transfer case on the bucket truck. Um, so we always tell them, you know, if it's not that critical, get a tow truck out there because it's it, that transfer case, you know, new a new transfer case for a truck like that's $21,000. And so you know, a couple hundred dollars to, or even a thousand dollars to have a, 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 se- a semi get pulled out by a, a tow truck is a better option. So I, I would say is how do you secure your trucks? How do you pull them out? Cause it doesn't matter what state you're in. If you have winter, especially in the Midwest where you have the icy roads and they get the crunchy snow, you, you can do a significant amount of damage just trying to pull a truck out of a flat spot on ice with snow. I mean, it, it just, it's not worth it. Um, you're better off just having the right people that know what they're doing to pull those trucks out. And you are a great guest because all the questions I was going to ask you, you you include them in your answers, which makes this very okay. smooth and, and easy process. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the construction equipment that you own. Um, I imagine you own some some backhoes and digging equipment. Do you also own some um, some bulldozers and heavy-duty construction equipment for that rugged territory? You know, the the one thing about the utility world anymore, especially in the in- investor-owned space, is, you know, at, there was a time before my time where we would have a construction season and then just a maintain uh, reliability season. But now the way the companies are investing capital and infrastructure, we are, we are year-round um, construction. In fact, we're starting to see, you know, it's not rugged terrain, but we're seeing more and more requests for ground thars. We're buying more ground thars so we can dig. 
in winter months through a lot of frost and customers are, you know, there's a fee for that, but customers pay it because they want to see that that uh, service in, installed. Um, as far as equipment, we run a ton of uh, mini excavators. They're the most popular piece of equipment. And that base, base, what you use, use is based on your soils. In the South Dakota, Nebraska area, we can we trench or we plow in. Um, you know, there's some areas where there are some, some soils we can't do that, but we typically plow or trench. In Montana, we have a mixture of either river rock or silt or decomposing granite. You know, there's there's a number of places in Montana we can't even use the auger on the line truck or the digger derrick um, for pole holes. We just have to. They're only used for anchors. We end up digging them with mini excavators or backhoes. But you know, we have probably we have well over a hundred mini excavators through our service territory, and we have around 60, 65 backhoes because you still need backhoes for bigger projects, digging a deeper depth, and then you know, just to have that more power. Um, we're seeing larger excavators come in, like your Caterpillar 308, 320 size excavators for gas mains, um, stuff on the transmission side. And then, you know, we do have a couple tracked digger derricks um, that we use, uh, s some for the swampy conditions in South Dakota. And then we also, in Montana, to get in some of our mountainous terrain, there are tracked chassis, digger derrick, boom, they have a, you know, they have a, a a bucket on them just to help us get some infrastructure in, you know, uh, during those winter months. Yeah. Do you have to order any special um, augers uh, or derricks? Like we have an advertiser, Harleman. I think they specialize in uh, um, augers or drills that uh, are in more uh, rugged territory. Yeah, we use a, and that's one thing I would encourage, you know, mostly management notes, but as you're specking a, a line truck or digger derrick, or, you know, you talk to whoever's manufacturing that truck for you and talk to their tooling folks. They can come out and look at your soils and, and recommend tools. It's come a long way in the last 20 years as far as what's available. You know, they have, you know, augers that are effective in different soils, different widths, depths, that type of thing. And just find out, we, we have a certain spec auger, but based on like, we could be 200 miles away in Montana and have a completely different soil classification. So we will adjust adjust augers, augers based on that. Um, Man, this is a, a great discussion. So uh, people who follow the podcast know that I always love to, uh, at halftime, do a uh, wildlife encounter story. You're in Yellowstone. This should be a slam dunk for you. Have you had any encounters with wolves or mooses or bears or anything like that? Yeah, we you know operating in Yellowstone, there's there's uh, always that we actually have encounters with wildlife throughout our service territory, um, you know, because we also we have some transmission gas transmission that rolls up into the around that Glacier National Park area. Um, obviously, operating in you know Western Montana, we see you know, we see a little bit of everything, and we hit a lot this wildlife on the highway too, which is unfortunate and it can get expensive, but. Um, one one animal encounter that comes to mind come you know was around 12 years ago in Yellowstone National Park and it was an area um, where it was under our power line right away uh, the Park Service would take animals that were hit you know by passenger vehicles the roadkill basically and they just dump the carcasses under the power line and we had two two of our linemen out there and they were in a side like a, a razor 1000. And they're driving underneath the right of way to take a look at the, the power line to determine what the trouble was. And as they're driving through this area where there's the roadkill, there's they encountered a female grizzly bear. Um, didn't see a cub, but she was there and she was agitated. They weren't really sure what to do, so they drove towards her, 
trying to get her to run off and, you know, honking the horn. Um, she ended up charging the Polaris Razor. And as they drove by, she swung her paw out to smack the the side by side. And her paw hit the windshield in front of the driver. It broke the windshield, hit the frame of the cab and then, and then smacked the, the driver's thigh. Um, her claws weren't out, but um, it did smack his thigh and he ended up with a bruise. They drove off. The bear ran off into the back into the timber. But uh, that was one scary encounter that, that we've had is, uh, you know, you're just doing your job trying to figure out why there's an outage. And all of a sudden you're face to face with that type of wildlife, you know, and a separate subject. But we, we do provide bear spray. We do provide, you know, uh, pepper spray for animals just for those encounters. Um, and thankfully, there's been very few. But that was one that could have been could have been real bad. <laughs> so, uh yeah, I've, I've, like recently, I, I've ridden in a, a deer gator, uh, you know, several times, and uh, uh, it's amazing he didn't get knocked out of there. Yeah, very fortunate. The, the idea was the fact that you know the cab, the, the you know the the upright for the the A frame on the cab, and then the the windshield took the blunt of the smack, so he just caught the back end of. So yeah, if there was no if there was nothing stopping that swipe, he would have probably been in a lot worse condition. Um, but he was able to get out of there. Wow. That's an, that's an amazing story. I, I could talk to you about this all day. So when, when, when people bump into you now at, at uh, our, our, our fleet manager events, uh, they, they can, they can hear probably lots of great stories from you about that. So, um, I'm going to jump back into business a little bit. So you're, you're in a part of the country that's a little more removed from, you know, the, the ports and, and the the big railroad and trucking areas, how are you su- uh, finding the supply chain issues? Are you getting everything that you need? Uh, it, it's improving. You know, we've had to be a little bit more like a little bit more ingenuity in what we do. Um, you know, with limitations from being able to order chassis from Ford or Stellantis or GM, we we've gone to dealers. Uh, we have some dealers we trust that give us a real a price very similar to what our agreements are with those manufacturers. Um, you know, we, we've had a mixture of, you know, just changing upfitters or get, having upfitters, you know, maybe open up their, their, their catalog to see what other brands they could bring in for bodies to get them. And then we, you know, since 2020, we've bought a lot of pre-built trucks. Um, we'll buy them from either the companies we rent from like Altec Global or Custom Truck, or we'll, uh, find them on a lot somewhere, just something that'll work. That's approximately correct to what we want. Um, so supply chain is, is still tough. Um, everything's very expensive as well. You know, uh, we talk about tires. Tires are, are you know, still incredibly expensive, what we're seeing for tire prices. But that goes with anything that goes on these new vehicles. Um, you know, we, we've still been able to get what we need. It just takes time. You know, we used to have a, a truck project, you know, in our capital budget would be, you know, one year. You know, it would take one year to build a service truck. Now it's almost a multi-year project where it's a, you get the chassis the first year, the body might take 12 months. One thing about the utility industry is we are so highly customized and we don't think we are, but when you start to, you know, all of our bodies are extremely customized and they're even inside your own fleet, you have multiple different variations, whether, you know, it's not just a nine foot standard service body. We have through bins, three quarter through bins. We have top opening bins. We have, you know, different add-ons canopies and stuff like that that we will add to these vehicles that are that adds to comp- the complexity of it 
Um, so you just have to really have a wide net, try to find what's going to meet your needs and, and get it. And we've been able to do that. And it's all about with, with your upfitters, your vendors, it's all about the relationship. You know, you're, you're searching yourself and then they're searching for solutions and you just try to, you, you got to keep the business going, right? You have, you have to have reliable trucks. And so that's that we've just been able to achieve that by finding stuff that works. Yeah, we're getting ready to go to the NTEA work truck show in, in March. And so uh, our March issue will be covering truck chassis, truck bodies, and upfitters. Um, where are you finding is the uh, lag time? Is it more with the chassis or the bodies or the upfitters, vehicle accessories that they're waiting for, or all the above? Right now in the 2024 environment, it's it's bodies. Uh, I you know we're a pr we're a predominantly Ford fleet. Um, just because of their chassis options, they'd meet our needs. Um, you know, I get through our vendors, actually our dealerships that work with us. I'm able to get the chassis I need. They're more expensive than they were. Um, you know, we've seen chassis prices go, you know, up 20, 23% since 2019. I just pulled some numbers together for our executive team last week. And, you know, that's where we're seeing our largest increase in cost increase is in the chassis. Um, and it's, it's a demand driven thing, but, um, we just, uh, the bodies right now are taking the longest time. We're looking around 12 months for a custom body. Sometimes you can get them quicker. I can see towards the back end of 24, it looks like it's easing a little bit, but bodies are definitely your holdup. You know, there's always random accessories that might hold you up, but you know, the truck still needs to go into service. If it's missing a step or missing a spotlight, you just find an alternative. Yeah, that's very interesting insight. And check out our utility fleet professional magazine for some of our truck body advertisers and, and, uh, you know, keep, keep them busy. So, uh, another subject I wanted to talk, uh, with you about is, um, you know, just EVs or alternative vehicles. Uh, you're in a rugged part of the country again. Um, have you had any experience with these? And if so, you know, what, what is your experience been? Yeah, we're, you know, we're a member utility of EEI, so we we did set an electrification goal, you know, as other member utilities did try by 2030 to hit a goal. You know, we've had limited success there, mainly because talk about supply chain, you just the electric vehicles have been difficult to get the BEVs. So in order to get credit in that goal, you need something that plugs in. So, you know, a hybrid doesn't doesn't count unless you you plug it in. So in the light duty space, it's been extremely difficult to get anything. And then we're also behind on our charging infrastructure. We're working with the state of Montana, South Dakota, and Nebraska to try to build out a charging infrastructure. And we're just behind the eight ball there. We have one right now, you know, our fleet, just so people know, it's, we're 1,200 vehicles through three states and like 2,000 other assets. So that in that 50, that 1,200 vehicles, it's anything from a car up to a class A truck. So we we run a lot of half-ton trucks. We probably have 250 of them and then another 60 or 80 escapes. So that's the population we'd like to electrify, you know, add BEVs, but we just haven't been able to acquire any. We have a Chevy Bolt that we bought about five years ago in our Bozeman, Montana area. And it's, you know, it's not ideal for us. It's not an all-wheel drive. It's not very large, but it was available at the time. Um, where we have had the most luck is is we do have nine um, Altec GEMS units. Uh, we have a mixture of just the idle mitigation cab comfort, and then we have one or two of the EPTO. Um, you know, those trucks have, have proven to be very good. The newest generations of the systems are 
are uh, are pretty smooth now. Um, what I would say though is the biggest thing we're going to run into with a fleet electrification is is our end users willing are they willing to adopt them? We still see in our especially with our electric bucket trucks, you know, end users just shoot shutting the system off. Um, and you know that's a that's an investment to buy those types of systems. It's an it's an investment, and you're kind of what you're hoping for on the on the back end is that you're going to save fuel, you're going to reduce the idle time, you know, longer intervals between oil changes, and the asset's going to last longer. And so, you, you know, when you go down this road of fleet electrification, is is you have to make sure that someone in the company is going to, as long as the asset's not a detriment, they need to use them. Um, and 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 right now we have people that just don't want to. And so there's going to have to be those conversations. How serious are we about this? Because if they're not going to use them or, you know, they're going to squabble if they get a, an electric F-150 Lightning, you know, we just, we, we don't, this goal is for the right reasons, but we need to make sure that we partner with operations or the drivers to utilize them. Yeah, one of the conferences I was at, I think I wrote down a note that you also um, discussed or presented about um, having employees take vehicles home. Uh, yeah. Do you want to share a little bit of your knowledge with that as to um, how you're doing it or um, doing that balancing act? Yeah, the, the take-home vehicles, uh, you know, are mostly for our on-call professionals or people that have, like, system-wide responsibility. It's, it, this has been in place long before I, I was here. And so whenever you have vehicles that go home, you know, you need to make sure that you're working with payroll because um, there's IRS rules on this. Um, 13B, I believe, was the rule is that, you know, tangible benefit. So there's a there are some taxes that the employee has to pay to take the vehicle home. But um, we we've gone through it. We went through a study. We you know, we have some that drive a ton of miles and some that don't drive many at all. But we do provide a vehicle for those that are on call or a scheduled on call schedule. We have around 200 of these vehicles that go home every night. Um and they're not just, you know, they're your engineers, your estimators, your area managers that that will be on a uh, scheduled on call. But then we also have some that have system wide responsibility that drive everywhere and they they have those vehicles. And those are mostly like we have some fusions, still have some old fusions, but we have some escapes, F one fifties, those type of vehicles. And uh it, it's it's interesting because we're also seeing now uh, the difficulty in hiring individuals in certain locations like Bozeman, Montana is a very expensive community to purchase a house in. Um, and so we have a number of these folks and our our other employees that live outside of town. Um, so we're seeing some, so, some longer commuting times to and from, which is on our dime. And so the company still has to figure out where they want to go there because um, it is a benefit. It absolutely is to have these vehicles, but um, there are some drawbacks. And uh, it's it's just a good portion of our fleet that we we still maintain every year, um, and it it accounts for about ten or ten or eleven percent of our expense budget each year to to maintain and fuel those vehicles. How are you tracking the business miles versus the personal miles? Is it uh, GPS or telematics? We actually don't track it like that. We we have a you know the payroll department and the tax department set up. Uh, they have a payroll mechanism that the individual just has to pay out of you pay twice a month. One of the paychecks has a charge for the vehicle and they don't track the miles like that. You know, in the IRS rule, you have some different options that you can follow. And this is the one that we do. Um, at some point in time, we're going to need to go down that road. Um, but we just haven't seen much traction there. Um, so yeah, there's some options. 
but we just we just do it as a payroll deduction every month uh, you know so many dollars per year and then they have the vehicle as an option to take home one last question on the subject um how do you do the fueling then do they have a fueling card do they use yeah. so they they how do you track like whether they fuel the vehicle for personal or business use do they use two different credit cards no um so one thing I should say with the take-home vehicles, we we have written in our policy that we allow incidental use. Um, mm. So if the employee is headed home from work, stops at the store for a minute, or stops at the gym, stops anywhere, you know, for a short period of time, they can use it. But we don't allow the vehicle to go camping on the weekends. They can't go to the dump. They can't pull their own trailer equipment with it. It's just mainly for commuting for company purposes. Um, so every vehicle has a WEX fuel card. We we have WEX, and the and the and the fuel card is is specific to the vehicle. The driver uses their own PIN number, so that's how we track the mileage and know who's fueling. Uh, one thing else we've had to do recently, which is kind of I guess not controversial, but it just maybe kind of shows a change in times, um, and that is that our risk management group has elected to allow passengers in the vehicles. Um, we had instances where an employee would you know, have to drop the kids off at daycare and then get to work. And it didn't make sense to bring the personal vehicle to daycare, come home, grab the company vehicle, then head in. So we do allow them to do that. They can transport, you know, loved ones in the vehicle. Our insurance policy covers that. Um, we just have some language in our fleet policy that's like, we cannot have passengers. They cannot drive the vehicle. It has to be an employee of the Northwestern. But then we we also need to make sure that they're not in the vehicle if we're reporting to any kind of emergency. Um, and that's that's kind of what we've had to do, um, you know, the kinder, more gentle uh, utility uh, fleet now. But um, it, it, it's it's worked okay because it doesn't make sense if, you know, they're they're doing two or three trips in the morning just to move, you know, kids around. We need them at work at a certain time, so we allow it. Well, this conversation and interview has far exceeded, you know, my expectations. Uh, so much information, good information here. That, that you've covered. I'm sure anybody who listens to this is is going to find it uh, really valuable. Uh, I really appreciate you taking your time. Montana, you know, with the TV shows and everything is now the, yeah. the it state, the place to go. So you, you guys are probably really busy installing power in all these people who are moving to your state. Yeah, we're seeing substantial growth. Uh, especially in the Bozeman, Montana area, uh, Livingston, Montana, all those areas outside Yellowstone Park. And then we're also seeing it in the northwestern part of the state. You have your Kalispell, your Whitefish, your Columbia Falls area. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's it's growing. Um, we're still only around a million people in the state of Montana. Um, there's still more cows than people, but it's, it is growing. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, are there any organizations or fleet manager groups that you belong to that uh, you'd like to give a shout out to? Yeah, you know, um, I'm on the I'm on the fleet committee for Midwestern Energy Association, MEA. Uh, that's a great group. Uh, you know, we do a we do a conference every spring uh, in the Midwest, and and those those folks are great. Um, the comp the member utilities as part of that are are good to work with. You learn a lot. I've met some really dear friends through that, and people I still reach out to this day to ask questions. Another um, organization that we're part of is Western Energy, uh, WDI, um, on the western part of the United States. Our, our, our service territory, you know, kind of straddles both areas. And so that that's a great group, too. Um, and, and they're, you know, they're a good group of utilities as well, some large utilities. And, and they're dealing with some of the the newer, you know, technology, just like us with battery electric, with hydrogen, all that stuff. So 
W-E-I-M-E-A, a great organizations. Um, you know, and then, you know, anytime I can, I, I go to EUFMC, the Electric Utility Fleet Managers Conference in, in Williamsburg, Virginia. That's that's a fantastic uh, show, um, you know, conference, both learning and seeing equipment, getting to, you know, meet people and grow your network. Um, one thing about fleet people, they're very passionate about what they do. Um, and and the one thing I've learned, I've been I've been fleet manager at Northwestern for 10 years. Um, my prior life, I was a safety professional. Um, but one thing I learned about being in the fleet world is you might think that you're alone or these are you, these issues are unique to you. They're not. You know, most issues that you have with whether it's frustrations with users, how they're treating your equipment or, or supply chain issues or that type of stuff specs. Um, most of these most of these utilities, including the co-ops, are are in the same boat. And uh, you know, just sharing those stories um, are, are great. It's great, and you can really learn a lot from you know from anyone else who has the same issues. Yeah, you touched upon two of the things that are my favorite about covering this industry. Is we talked about the diversity of the equipment, you know, in the industry, and, and the passion. And thanks for bringing up those organizations, especially. I, I always enjoy attending those MEA meetings. Um, the, the discussions I always find extremely insightful. Um, the attendees are very generous with, uh, with their information. So you can really learn a lot from your peers. Absolutely. Well, Dan, thanks again to you and Northwestern Energy for sharing your time with us. This very, very informative, uh, podcast and just want to Remind everybody out there to roll safe. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the utility business media and its employees. It is strongly recommended that you discuss any actions or policy changes in your company.